0: This is the Cherryleaf Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Cherryleaf's training division. If you find that you have some time free at the moment for learning and improving your skills, then our online training courses may be of interest to you. For more information, go to cherryleaf.com. We arranged this a while ago. The, the world has changed <laughs> somewhat since then. I take it you're uh, healthy and fine so far. I've just
1: really I yeah, I am so far. Thank you so much for checking. Yes, uh, yes, I'm fine. And uh, yeah, my thoughts are fine. And we, we're just hold up. I think same as the rest of the planet doing our own thing at the moment. Um, how, how are you and yours? Are they doing OK?
0: We're fine. We're adjusting. We've got um, everyone at home working in different rooms downstairs. We're all having um, family lunches together, which is quite, quite nice oh, to lovely. sit down rather than a quick sandwich. It's, that's one change. So we normally start off with getting the person to introduce themselves. So I suppose that's a, a good place to start.
1: Sure, no problem. So uh, I'm Jen, Jen Lamborn. I am currently the knowledge management lead at Monzo Bank in the UK. I've worked in tech comm in many different guises for the past decade or so and a very long and winding route and have ended up in banking, which is not where I thought I would be, but it's definitely where I am.
0: You were before that at GDS that does gov.uk and gosh, they must be busy at the moment, I guess. I don't know if you're still in contact with people there, what they've set up for the site is probably being pushed above and beyond what was ever expected, I would have thought.
1: It's true. I don't think anyone really expected uh, these unprecedented times that we're living in at the moment. I'm still in contact with a lot of my Gov. UK pals and my old teams to see how they're doing. They're holding up really, really well. Having a central source of information at this kind of time from government is so critical. And the fact they've made all this investment in that infrastructure is really, really paying off. And they do an awful lot of pressure testing for Countrywide communications, really, at different times anyway. They didn't quite expect it to be used in this kind of scenario, but they are Hmm. very, very well set up to be able to handle this.
0: So I thought it would be good to talk to you because of your involvement with GDS and some of the really interesting things that have happened there, and also equally with Monzo, which has been a real pioneer and a, a trendsetter in terms of developer documentation. In terms of which we talk about first... GDS first or Monzo first?
1: Uh, Let's start with GDS.
0: Yeah. What was your role at GDS?
1: So when I first joined, which was around five or so years ago, I joined as a technical writer. It was the first time I'd ever had technical writer as as a job title, even though I figured out very quickly that I'd been doing that job for a while in other guises. So I joined as a tech writer and I joined a couple of product teams to support them writing API documentation and technology guidance for the rest of government. And in the time that I was there, then progressed onto lead technical writer. And then for the last sort of year or so that I was there, I was the head of technical writing. So heading up the technical writing team at GDS itself, but also in a head of role at GDS, you end up heading up the different digital data and technology professions across government. So that meant I was the de facto lead for tech writing across government at that
0: time. What was that like managing a team and must have been exciting and, and scary? What was it like?
1: That's a wonderful combination. Yes, absolutely terrifying and brilliant all at the same time. Leading that team was honestly one of my favourite things ever to do and I miss it terribly. You get such a mix of minds and ideas and different practices. You get to see so much because the breadth of what you need to cover is massive. Just in general kind of leading that team and being able to set a strategy and direction and then be able to see that come to life is amazing. Especially from when I joined where a lot of documentation practices didn't really exist. We didn't have a lot of governance or process and things were really struggling because of that. And then leaving five years later and seeing that fully transformed was was really something. And I was very, very fortunate to have some really great people in my direct team and other people to collaborate with. And those people really have done or are or are going on to amazing things. So being yeah. able to support them and even a small part of that journey was incredibly rewarding. But you're right, it was also very, very tough sometimes in government or anywhere really you get bad days. I would say in government, sometimes a bad day in government is a probably a a worst worst day someone's worst ever ever situation you could be in sometimes and your job as a lead is to sometimes protect that team um, mm. and sometimes you you need to expose them to some things and help them through it as an opportunity to grow and trying to find that balance can be difficult
0: you've got I guess 60 million 60 odd million customers all there who could potentially express an opinion on whether things are going well or things are not going well
1: Oh, 100%. And you can see in any of you have a look at the comment section on any of our blog posts that we publish in the public, a lot of people do have a lot of opinions about how we do things or didn't do things or they would have done things differently. Um, And of course, it's their right to be able to do that. We try to be as open as possible with all of our practices. It's funded by taxpayer money, after all, you know, you have a right as a citizen to understand how that money is being used. But it's also very, very hard if you're on the front line, and you're getting a barrage of feedback from people that you are trying really, really hard to help. And they may have approached things differently.
0: GDS and gov.uk, for those that aren't familiar, what are they?
1: Very good question. So GDS was set up, I'm going to get my stats from now, I think it was (laughs) around eight or nine years ago, with the idea that there should be some kind of department that could help the rest of government in their digital transformation. And at that time, there were lots of different departments and parts of government that were publishing content and information for the public or for businesses or for other parts of government in lots of different places. And so that meant that you ended up with literally hundreds of websites. And so if you needed some information from the government or to do a thing like get a new passport or renew your driving license, you needed to know exactly which department was responsible for that and exactly which website would help you find that thing. And that was really, really hard and it was really confusing and it made it really painful to deal with government. And no one likes dealing with government at the best of times. And so the idea of GDS was to start with the concept of a single website for all government information so that you wouldn't need to know where to look. So that's how Gov.uk came to be. And GDS was originally a team that was run out of a tiny, tiny little room in London, which then expanded and then started taking more and more bits of digital government work. So it started setting standards and policies around digital and data and technology work in government. It started writing policies and career frameworks for that kind of thing. It also started building shared products for the rest of government to use. So, for example, a shared payments platform Mm -hmm. so that if you needed to take payments from the public to pay a bill or a fine or something like that, that you could pay that money online. And rather than having to procure or kind of like source a different version of that every single time you did it, GDS would build a central one for you and you could just borrow it, take it from them, plug it into your systems and away you go. So the remit of GDS has changed quite a bit over the years, but Gov.uk is definitely still its flagship. It's still the main thing we're known for. They still have a very big team working on it. And as you can see at the moment, it's still incredibly useful when you need to get a lot of information to the public.
0: So the approach and technologies that GDS used, there seemed to be very much a user-focused approach to that what skills did people apply and techniques did they apply then to get it right for for the platforms and and websites that GDS created
1: so I mentioned that one of the things that GDS now looks after is these kind of policies and standards for best practice in digital government and most of those always start with putting users first Mm -hmm. so if you have a look at something like the GDS design principles or the technology code of practice or the digital service standard all of those start with understanding what your users need And critically, GDS and Gov.uk always refer to the people who use their services or use their website as users and not customers. They do that deliberately. It's a linguistic choice because they feel that customer implies that you might have a choice about where you purchase something or get that information. Mm -hmm. And, And you might do that for something else, but when you're trying to get information on government, unfortunately, you only have one place to go. So they always start with users and they always refer to users. So all of those policies and standards begin with start with user needs and that means lots of different things to different people but really the bulk of it means that you need to spend a lot of time a lot of effort understanding what people need from what you are offering and distinguishing between their needs and wants so i always use the example of if you ask someone how they want to get to the shops they might want a lamborghini to get there but if they don't have a parking garage or they can't drive a car or don't have a driving license they don't need a car they might need a bicycle And so being able to distinguish the difference between user needs and wants is really important. And being able to research those effectively, is actually really, really hard. And so that's where the whole discipline and practice of user research comes in. Whilst you have all these policies that say start with user needs, you then have a whole discipline, a whole group of incredibly intelligent and well-trained people on how you actually get to that point where they spend a lot of time researching with users to understand what they need as well as a little bit about what they want and be able to distinguish between the two and feeding that into product teams so that they are constantly iterating on what you're doing and everything remains user focused so So, you build a thing and test it and see if it still works
0: so how did you and the other people in the team acquire those skills was it through experience of doing it or did people come from certain academic backgrounds with those skills already
1: Um, A bit of both. So they built up the user research practice over time. A lot of the kind of the research practices and approaches do come from academia, but a lot have kind of evolved as software development and product development has grown as a profession itself. And so you end up with a lot of researchers there who have done it in different guises, but you end up with a lot of experienced researchers there who are embedded in your team with you, provide a lot of training, a lot of guidance on how that works. Um, every team is empowered to go out and do their research themselves so regardless of your role in your team if you are a tech writer or a product manager or a developer you will either observe or be part of user research a couple of times a week as and, standard
0: and how much time is given to that because it's often one of those things that's squeezed out of project's
1: For sure, yeah, there's always a heavy time investment up front. So it's completely standard practice if you are starting a new product or a new phase of work to do a discovery, to spend a whole period of time just in discovery, which is just doing research. You're not building anything, you are just researching. And that could be a couple of weeks, it could be a couple of months, depending on the scale of what you're building. And they also factor in research time for, like I say, testing and iteration as standard practice as part of your work. So there might be half a day's worth of testing at the end of a two-week sprint, for example or kind of more if,
0: if the situation calls for it. A lot of this research or standards and approaches is publicly available, if I remember correctly.
1: Yep, absolutely, yep. So um, as I say, taxpayer has absolutely every right to understand what they're working on and or we're working on and where their money is going. And so wherever possible, it's not always possible, sometimes for security or regulatory reasons, but wherever possible, that information is is findable and it's, it's open. And quite often they're doing research with members of the public as well. So if anybody's listening to this and has an opinion on gov.uk or a service, you can always get involved in user research yourself.
0: And it was very much, if I remember correctly, or, or is today still, very much driven by open source software. How did that affect the way in which the content was created and published?
1: So a lot of the practices we use do come from kind of existing practices that we've borrowed from elsewhere. So like you say, the open source community and the the practices around open source software are very kind of well established. Um, They have a lot of practices that work well, a lot of things that we repurpose for this sort of work. And it helps to be able to take those learnings and then apply them to new problems where GDS said where possible all new code should be open, not necessarily fully open source with the full community around it, but it should be open so that people can learn from what we've done. And then someone raised the question about, well, why is the content not the same? So in every case, especially with technical documentation, that's the approach that we took in the tech writing team at the time. We'll make our documentation open as well. There's no reason not to. Lots of people can derive more value from it mm-hmm. and it can be really beneficial. So if we've seen it work in open source software, there's no reason why we
0: shouldn't apply that to content. So in terms of the skills profile of the people that were recruited for those roles, what skills did they need to have to be recruited?
1: As a base level, regardless of whether you're a technical writer or a content designer, good copy editing and writing skills as standard, a typical one, it didn't really necessarily matter on your particular background. So we had former journalists, we had former marketers, people that had always been in copywriting of some description, people that had more of a tech con background. But we also had people that were bringing different skills. So for instance, people that had worked on support lines or frontline customer support lines who were used to working directly with customers and writing very, very user-focused content, whether or not they viewed it that way at the time they were doing that job. So being able to remain focused on the user, being able to write and follow kind of agile processes so being able to never chasing that idea of perfect or done, but just being able to release content and iterate it, and the importance of being able to edit and measure the effectiveness of what you were doing it was always something that was needed. And then for technical writing specifically, we laid on a couple of extra. Skill requirements on top of that, depending on what you'd be working with. At a base that was being very comfortable around technology, being able to ask very, very good questions. We ended up hiring a lot of former journalists because of that, because they were so skilled at being able to ask the right questions to find funny edge cases and things we might not have previously considered. And very, very strong editorial skills to be able to edit something down to the absolute core that it needed to be to be able to meet a user
0: need. you moved on from there two months ago to Monzo or is it more recent than that
1: no no that's right I started at the beginning of this year
0: first off what attracted you to move on from GDS and a move to Monzo
1: I am an absolute glutton for a very hard problem I always try and end up working for a company or an industry or an organization that has a really really meaty problem that doesn't seem fixable at a point in time I love being in that kind of environment Mm. Monzo is definitely one of those I didn't necessarily want to leave GDS. It took a very big pull from Monzo uh, for me to leave because I was very, very happy there. But Monzo was doing something that was so interesting and so difficult in an industry that I've never worked in before that it was just too good an opportunity to resist, really. What I really liked about GDS is, like I say, no one likes dealing with government. So they tried to make it as pain-free as possible. Mm. Monzo has a very similar ethos. It's it's in banking. No one likes to deal with their bank. Mm. No one enjoys dealing with their finances. And so they're just trying to make it easier for people. That's all they're doing. And so I like working in those kind of environments. I like trying to find ways to to use my skills to support people that are trying to just make things easier for people. And that's exactly what Monzo is doing.
0: So Monzo is one of these challenger banks, been around for not too many years, I don't think.
1: No, it's quite new in the grand scheme of things. Um, It has 4 million customers. It's growing very, very fast. It still does everything that your traditional high street bank might do, but it doesn't have high street stores. So it's all app-based. It's all online. Most of our workers are remote. It's very kind of uh, progressive and forward thinking when you think about traditional banking infrastructure in the UK. We are mostly in the UK, but we also uh, have a company in the US as well.
0: So they've had an opportunity to start from a clean sheet, which must help a, a great deal. So, your role at Monzo, your job title is Knowledge Management Lead. Is that correct? Yep. What does that mean?
1: (laughs) Good question. And it's the question that I'm getting from so many people, even within Monzo. So, I hope this will help. It's the first time that Monzo has had someone looking after any kind of docs or internal content or knowledge full time. I'm responsible basically for improving how knowledge and information is shared and maintained across the whole of the organization. So in practice, that means looking at things about where our information is stored, for example, what kind of like platforms and tooling do we then use? And then above that, how is that information managed and maintained? What kind of processes and governance do we have there? What kind of training and support do we give people to make sure that that content stays up to date and accurate and helpful? And then kind of making sure that we have a knowledge sharing culture on top of that. How do we make sure that knowledge and information isn't trapped in people's heads? How do we encourage people to, to share critical bits of information? And how do we do that in a very, very, very highly regulated environment in a very, very, very fast pace to keep track of everything, to make sure that we stay ahead of all of our competitors and make sure we're still being useful for people? So my remit is very, very broad. And like I say, I'm the only one of me mm-hmm. right now. In time, we will hire up a full team, same as we did at GDS, but at the moment, it is just me.
0: So this is SharePoint and Word.
1: Absolutely not. Uh, very, very different. Yeah. So, uh, we are using something called Notion for our internal knowledge base. Okay, um, yeah which is great uh, and not so great at some things. But that is our main central source of information. We're still using tools like Google Drive, um, Google Docs, Google Sheets, all of the G Suite for collaborative editing on documents.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We still use GitHub for software documentation and other things. And we have an absolute myriad of other tools that we store information and data in as well. Notion. It started off as a bit of a productivity app, a bit like Evernote, Mm -hmm. where you could sort of keep notes and uh, it's very nicely designed, lots of kind of white space, integrates very well with lots of different products. And it was kind of used as, yeah, a note taking and productivity sort of app. It's grown hugely, absolutely massively. And it's lovely to use, very, very good for collaborative editing. We were one of their very, very early enterprise customers to use it across the organization. We use it as a kind of our closest thing to a wiki really Mm -hmm. Uh, it's where our company information lives our policies documents all that kind of stuff team information lives in there but there's a lot of things that it does well as well so you can add relational databases in there and add connect kanban boards and air tables and all sorts of other stuff that we also use it for
0: are you looking at storing information as documents or as fragments of documents as topics as web pages Is there a philosophical approach to how you're defining what a piece of information is from, a, I guess, an information architecture perspective?
1: That's such a good question for a very big thing that I'm trying to tackle at the moment. Well, I'm two months in now, so I've just figured out the basics of, well, until we started working from home, how to make a cup of tea, where the kitchens are what my new commute looks like, all that good stuff. And then where have we got information? What does it currently look like? How yeah. is it currently being accessed? All that good stuff. We do have an information architecture problem. That is one of the things I'm trying to define at the moment. So currently, all of our information that sits in Notion, it's all web-based. I would love for it all to be topic and task-based, but we're very far from that at the moment. But we will get there in time. So at the moment, yeah, it's loosely classified around pages, which are kind of grouped according to the organisational structure. So Our rough information hierarchy at the moment matches what the organisation structure looks like, which is fine, providing, again, it's that classic problem that GDS had back in the day. If you know which department is responsible for what thing, you can find that information, no problem. If you don't, you're probably going to struggle. And at the moment, that wiki base, that notion base has so much content in it, our search functionality is not strong enough to be able to extract the information that you're going to need.
0: And are you aiming to have topic reuse? I remember you saying within GDS that there actually wasn't very many opportunities or need to have topic reuse and that that was something that maybe was overemphasized within the tech con community, certainly within the GDS environment. Is that something that you've looked at yet at Monzo?
1: Not yet, but we definitely will be. So you're right, at GDS, it was a little bit different. My re was quite a bit smaller at GDS. So we were creating software documentation for specific products. And those products were quite well-defined. And so we didn't often need bits of content reuse within those documentation sets or between products, Hmm. which was nice and neat and very helpful. Monzo, not quite so neat. Yes, that will absolutely be something that we will look at in future, hopefully when I have some more people in my team to help me with it.
0: And with a tool like Notion, some of the other tools that are there has monzo looked at or built a taxonomy a metadata standards for that or is that on the roadmap for where you're going forward or-
1: that is absolutely on the roadmap again this is the first time they've had anyone uh in the organization that's had the time to think about this yeah. um, there's some incredible people working there who have so many ideas about how we can approach this and, and can support it which is great uh, and then we'll be nabbing those people as soon as i can find all of them so that will be coming soon but yeah it isn't something that we currently have
0: So you've been there, I think you said about two months and you've got a monster project challenge there. Where do you start? Sure. Such a good question. So uh,
1: there are lots that I could and should be doing right now. I say I have to be realistic about what I can actually achieve because it is just me right now. That said, I do have a pretty aggressive and pretty ambitious six month plan. This is kind of mostly focused on demonstrating the value of good documentation and good knowledge management practices, because many people who work at Monzo, it might be their first job, or they might have been with the organization for a long time, or they've kind of seen our current documentation practices and thought that might be good enough, or they want to fix things, but they're not sure how. It's really important to me that folks can see the value of what what this offers when it's done properly. For me, for the past few months, that has meant going across the organisation, spending an awful lot of time shadowing people, interviewing people at every single level, discipline, area of the business to understand what their pain points are, where this might be a knowledge management problem or where knowledge management or documentation could possibly help, and then being able to prioritise some areas that we need to fix. As well as that, it's been looking at other things, so to understand whether the problems that we're seeing are actually the true problems or whether they're symptomatic of a wider issue. So for example, when I first arrived, there was a lot of noise in our Slack channels about the fact that people couldn't find information in Notion in our knowledge base Mm -hmm. because they thought the search functionality was not up to scratch. That was the case. Notion then released some fixes for the search and it became much better um, and people still find search issues. So for me, then coming in with a kind of fresh pair of eyes and more of a documentation knowledge management background is to then look at that and to realize that the reason we're having a lot of search issues is because a lot of our content is not unique. And so if you've got the same titles for things, the same yeah. structure for things, people copying and duplicating things all over the place, it doesn't matter how strong your search algorithms are. You're never going to find the information you need if you're approaching your content structure like that. Yeah. So it's been picking up out those kind of problems. And like I say, talking to a lot of people and looking at as much data as I can get my hands on. Then the next six months, which I've set up and I'm, I'm only planning six months ahead at this stage because I've got a funny feeling everything will change. But it's just looking at... One of the big problem areas that we have, which is the platform stability for Notion. How do we improve the data we get out of it? Making sure we've got business continuity plans in place if we happen to lose the data, that kind of thing. And then looking at or trying to help one major area of the business that really, really needs support. And at the moment, that is our customer operations team. If our customer frontline support staff, if they can't find the information they need to know how to advise a customer properly, if they give out wrong information to a customer or incorrect information or... Just something that doesn't help, that can raise complaints. It can get us in regulatory hot water. Yeah, We do a thousand wonderful things. And at the moment, that documentation could be managed a lot better than it is. So that's one of the areas I'm starting with.
0: Everyone can write content and share content. Is that the philosophy at Monzo?
1: Currently, it won't be very soon. Currently, almost anyone, anywhere in the company can write anything.
0: And do they get any so, training? Oh, sorry.
1: I was just going to say that could be that could be problematic for lots of different reasons. Uh, so in some cases, that information is locked down. Obviously, we have very, very kind of like strict regulatory needs and compliance needs, which they're very, very hot on. And a lot of that more information is is much more controlled. It's much more tightly governed. have great practices in some areas. We just need to kind of bring that into the rest of the business.
0: Yeah. And are the people that are creating content, are they given any training on standard ways to approach this or writing clearly?
1: they will be very soon. We also have a fantastic in-house writing team. It's a four-person team that just look after writing in general at Monzo. Their focus is quite often on external writing for the website or for the app or for emails or whatever it happens to be. Um, And they sit within the marketing division, but they work across the organization. They do some fantastic training and provide standards for what good looks like in that area. So, Every single person who joins Monzo is given that training within their first couple of weeks. That team is always on hand to support and help with a thousand and one other things. They're just very, very busy. So I am supporting them from an internal content perspective so they can focus on external content. But we all kind of are working to the same standards and providing the same level of training. Uh, And one of the things I'll introduce over the next six months will be more developed training on how we handle internal content and standardize that.
0: And are there any sort of significant differences between the way that Monzo operates and GDS approaches this type of problem?
1: I'd say GDS still has its kind of its government roots, of course. Nothing gets done in government without a business case. It means a lot of paperwork up front in order Mm -hmm. to make a change and to get something done. Monzo still have lots of checks and balances in place, pun completely intended, for making sure that enough due diligence is done before a change is made. But it's much more lightweight. And so you don't need to kind of go through a a huge kind of rigmarole to get something approved or signed off um, or reviewed before you just try something to see if it works. And so there's a lot more freedom at Monzo to experiment with something, to get some more data on something, to prove a case or to disprove a hypothesis that you happen to have so that you you can get going an awful lot quicker than you can working in government.
0: So on your plan for the next six months, when you get to the end, how will you know whether your plan has been successful or not?
1: So measurement with all of this kind of stuff is always incredibly hard. Um, I'd always say it depends on the things that you're trying to influence and the things you're trying to change. So some things are quite quantifiable. We do a lot of metrics around our customer support, for instance, and measuring how effective our documentation is for those members of staff. We can track improvements in that area relatively easy. Where things are harder, the kind of the more cultural changes. And then more kind of like behavioral changes that we're trying to support to encourage people to, to do best practice and to, to follow uh, good standards when it comes to writing internal documentation. That is, is harder to manage. I'm looking at ways at the moment to measure things like content accuracy and levels of updatedness um, and things like this. It's always going to be hard. So that plan, which has a number of different goals and objectives in each have different metrics and measurements that I'm using to to see whether or not these things have worked. But it definitely depends on what we're trying to achieve at one time.
0: I noticed there was a tweet by you last week, having a good chat about software architecture diagrams today, tech writer, dev, Twitter, you must have a bunch of articles and conf talks out there on this. What have you got bookmarked? Well, I was interesting in what prompted the question and what answers you got back from people to that question.
1: Um, it came from a discussion that I was having with one of our senior staff engineers and a group of engineers at Monzo. We were talking about proposals, which is a very, very well documented practice and documentation practice at Monzo, whereby if someone's going to introduce a change, they will explain exactly what they're going to change and why and what they're expecting as a result and other things they have looked at and risks and various other things they've considered as part of that before they go and make that change. That document then kind of goes out for review to the wider engineering community for input Um, It's a really hugely valuable process at Monzo. We've been using those since day one at Monzo. So you've got a full history to be able to see what changes were ever proposed in the company and why or why not those then didn't go ahead. But as part of that, if you are using some part or influencing some part of the architecture in some way, when I say architecture, Monzo itself is built on over 1,500 microservices. It's quite a very, very different approach to building a company at this scale and definitely a bank. Hmm. So if you are changing one element of it, the idea of it obviously being in microservices means that you can adapt something without it breaking everything else. And they have very intelligent dependency management between that. But if you're writing a proposal, you might then need to explain why you changing something in one place might affect something somewhere else. Uh, and so you might need to then be able to explain at a high level or a lower level exactly what you're doing, what you might be changing and what the effects are. And sometimes the most effective way to communicate that is via diagrams. It kind of came up as a bit of a conversation in a couple of slack threads, mm-hmm. uh, like I say, with these uh, senior staff engineers about the best practices around documentation diagrams and when they can be used, how accessible they are, best practices around them, the tooling you can use, that kind of thing. We were answering all these kind of different questions and we were all trading our own experiences uh, of handling these. Our tech ops team were looking at network hardware diagrams and things like that at the same time. And so while we were having this discussion, that's why I kind of put it out on Twitter Mm -hmm. at the time to find out what everybody else was using. A really interesting mix of responses back lots of developers rather than technical writers which i found interesting because normally if i send out a tweet related to docs it gets flooded full of tech writers and never developers (laughs) and then you asked about diagrams and i got flooded full of response from developers and not tech writers yeah the developer and engineer mindset was very much to use things that were much more relatable for them kind of modeled on something that they had used before Lots of kind of recommendations for plant UML, which I have used before. The C4 model, which I've looked at before, but not used in a lot of detail. And that kind of focus. Less about naming conventions, design conventions, reusability, accessibility, that kind of thing, which normally comes from tech writers rather than
0: engineers. Yeah. I found the conversation about the C4 model quite interesting. Follow on from UML as an option for writing these type of diagrams. I suppose often we're sort of given these, as technical writers, given these by the developers and said, "Okay, incorporate those into your documentation and not necessarily created from source by technical writers themselves.
1: Definitely, yeah. And that's why I found that Twitter thread so fascinating. Like you said, the discussion about the C4 model, uh, which for one was great because the creator of the C4 model pitched up in that thread, uh, which was always helpful. But yes, the focus kind of very much on the creation of the diagrams, less around the maintenance of them or the accessibility of them or where you would use them in docs in place of, or alongside other written documentation, for example, which I guess were the more design-related questions I had.
0: You've been really with two cutting-edge companies that are leading the light for technical documentation. Have you got any thoughts on where Techcom is going? Because, I mean, you're hiring journalists and taking people from people outside of the traditional technical writing background to do, as it were, technical writing jobs does that suggest there's a skills gap with normal technical writers or just that it needs to be a wider community? Have you have you've got any thoughts on where tech comm as a profession is going?
1: Sure. I mean, to address your point about skills, I think the journalism background was particularly valuable at GDS because the GDS work was split into two. So you had More classic software documentation, which was more traditional technical writing, as we would understand it, perhaps. But the other half of the work was to write technology guidance that would help people understand very, very complex technology policy. And to be able to do that, it was less instructional, kind of like step by step guides to things. And it was more guidance to help people interpret that policy and then apply it to what they needed. And we found for that type of work, the journalism background really, really did apply. We didn't find much crossover and interest between those two parts so uh, it was always of interest to me why the folks with more of a journalism background weren't always interested in touching the more traditional software documentation but where we were working on documentation we would hire people that were former support engineers or had more of a kind of a classic tech Mm -hmm. comm background so I do you think it does depend on the, the type of docs and types of content, types of users that you're writing for? I would always see that there's a place for both of those skill sets and both of those sort of backgrounds in tech comm, I don't think that will ever change, yeah. particularly within software-related tech comm. I don't think it's you know a hard stretch to say. I think we're going to see more pools for API documentation. Uh, that's always ever going to be growing, especially as more companies grow to use APIs and microservices. I'm also kind of expecting more growth in documentation requirements for machine learning and things like that. I still think, you know, as those technologies evolve, we're going to need more documentation support in there. I think that introduces some very unique documentation challenges that I'm not convinced the industry has quite figured out yet. Mm -hmm. And because of that, I do think there's going to start to be a bit more of a blend between content and data. So I still see the professions as quite distinct. I see people that work in tech comm that stay very firmly in the content space. Mm -hmm. And I see people that work in data and work in machine learning and they stay very firmly in their space. And then in the middle, you see people, very rarely, but it is happening, mostly around, you know, in in companies like Google and others that are looking at the overlaps uh, for things like knowledge graphs and more kind of semantic work where you kind of, we're moving towards this, or away from this idea, idea of kind of unconnected content and more towards, you know, being able to programmatically model a domain or a topic area and then to boost that with machine learning and subject matter expertise to draw connections between topics, between things. And that's where taxonomies and ontology work really comes to the fore and where I think we'll see more of a blend between traditional content roles and traditional data roles I
0: don't know if you've read Mark Baker's book that he came up with I'm just trying to see if I've got it on my shelf behind me he was the person that did the every pages page one and his second book was about that particular topic and in fact again one of the early podcast interviews we talked to Mark and covered some of that in that interview that was about 18 months ago but i don't know if you've read mark's book it touches on that topic
1: that's fantastic i haven't read a second one i've read every page as page one which i think is is excellent Uh, i definitely will go and look that up there's a lot of very interesting products now that are coming out that are trying to identify this but it's still very very early days um
0: found it structured writing rhetoric and process mark baker and that's by xml press
1: very good recommendation thank you i shall stick that on my list
0: you have talked to TCUK and at Write the Docs. You did a brilliant presentation on Choose Your Own Adventure. I've watched the video of that. How have you found that and are you planning to do more of that?
1: Well, I think actually the... Possibly the very first time we met, Ellis, I think was possibly at a TCUK way, way back in the day, or maybe even UA Europe when they were still running. Yeah, it was it was a goal then. It's still a goal now. It's still something I'm trying to kind of keep on top of. I think when we, when we first met back in the day, I hadn't done any public speaking of that other than kind of speaking in a company event or something. Yeah. And since then, I've done a fair few conference talks and meetup talks. It still remains terrifying. I'm not a natural public speaker, but it's getting easier. I still find it incredibly fun. And it's still something I kind of want to pursue as much as possible. I had a few lined up for this year, Unfortunately, they've kind of been cancelled or are uh, being rescheduled yes. um because of the current events, so I'm really hoping that more than anything that the organizations who run those conferences get the financial support that they need. I know so many of those organizations rely so heavily on those ticket sales and aren't always in a position to run them remotely, so mm. I'm really hoping that they remain operational and viable and yeah, we'll just have to kind of wait and see how it goes. But as soon as we can find more opportunities, I mean, I'll be up there. I'll still be speaking.
0: And if people want to contact you, how's the best way of contacting you?
1: Twitter is probably the best thing. I spend far, far too much time on Twitter. My handle is really awkward. It has a double underscore in the middle. Uh, So it's Jenny, J-E-N-N-Y, double underscore and A-N-N-E. I'm always lurking on there. If you want to come and say hello, if anybody's listening and they're on the Write the Doc Slack, I'm also on there. And feel free to. Come and say hi anytime. I always love talking about this stuff, so happy to chat anytime.
0: Thank you. I think it's good that we have more people stepping up. I would say, you know, have a go. Everyone that's watching a speaker wants them to succeed. They're not there to have a miserable time. They're usually very forgiving if things don't quite go out the right way.
1: Absolutely. And I used to be that person. I used to sit in that in those audiences and stare up at someone and think, oh my goodness, you're the absolute expert on this thing. I'm just here to learn. This is like a one-way transmission of information. I just have to absorb everything from your head into mine. And then maybe one day I'll figure all of this stuff out and know what I'm doing. What I figured out by sitting in so many different speaker rooms and talking to so many other speakers is that we're quite often in the same place. We just had either figured one tiny part of that out and we just want to share that bit of information, or we're just getting up there to kind of show an approach or Something that we have, so that we can find other people. It's the easiest way to find other people on a particular topic. When I stand up and I talk about Doxers Code or GDS, or I stand up and I talk about an approach to user research, everything went wrong the first time I tried it. Then everyone comes out the woodwork. If you stand there and you say there is one way of doing it, and here is how you do this thing, no one comes up to talk to you afterwards.
0: Thank you for sharing your thoughts on these topics, Jen.
1: Not at all. I always love chatting about these things. Like I say, always love a conversation with you, Ellis. So anytime.
0: (laughs) Thanks very much.